Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This event is part of the African Strategic Forum sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. I'll begin this afternoon's lecture by introducing our moderator and coordinator, Professor Hashim Meki. Professor Meki has taught Arabic language, culture, and Middle East media at IWP since 2012. He's the owner of Bridge Language Solutions, providing an array of language translation, interpretation, and teaching services to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area, and the founder of Keeley Global, a nonprofit organization that promotes education, health, and economic empowerment in the Sudan and the Republic of South Sudan. He holds a bachelor's degree in both political science and international studies from the City College of New York and a Master of Arts in Strategic Studies and International Politics from IWP. I'd like to thank the panelists for joining us this evening. And without further ado, I will hand it over to Professor Mecki. Thank you so much, uh, Hannah, for this uh, kind and warm introduction. Uh, hello, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thank you for tuning in on Zoom, YouTube, and on Facebook. As Hannah has said, my name is Hashim Meki, and I'm also the coordinator and moderator of the African Strategic Forum, which brings uh, a deep understanding and address critical issues relating to governance, culture, development, private sector, and African politics. The forum invites leaders and independent thinkers and experts from broad in in interdisciplinary background for in-depth conversations on key topics. Our topic of discussion today is security sector reform in Sudan and the social transformation. We have two remarkable speakers who bring depths of ex expertise and knowledge on the security sector reform. Our presenters will explore how security sector reform can be implemented and democratic rule can take root in Sudan. They will discuss the possible pitfalls in the security sector reform processes and how democratic civilian movement can prevail in the Sudan. Uh, first, just a few housekeeping items before we start. I will first introduce the panel and then I will uh, also uh, give uh, them a few minutes to provide their remarks. And after that, I will, I will ask them a couple questions to lead the discussion. And then I will open it up for Q&A from the audience. So please feel free to uh, prepare your questions and don't shy away. And we would have a, a lovely discussion. Without further ado, I'll introduce Dr. Linda Bishai and Dr. S Dr. Sarah Desener. Dr. Linda Bishai is an adjunct professor at the Iliad School of International Affairs and research staff member on the Africa team at the Institute for Defense Analysis. Mr. Bishai has 20 years of experience in teaching, training, peace building, and security sector reform. Mr. Bishai previously, or previously worked at the American Bar Association and at the US Institute of Peace. She works on a wide range of international security issues, introducing African regional economic communities. 
security cooperative or security cooperation in Africa and monitoring instability in Central and Southern Africa. She also delivered programs on preventing election violence in Sudan and South Sudan, civic education and higher education reform in Sudan and women's, women's role in preventing violent extremism in Nigeria and Kenya. Bishai holds a BA in history and literature from Harvard University and a JD from Georgetown uh, University Law Center, an LLM in international law from the University of Stockholm and a PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics. Now I will introduce uh, Dr. Sarah Desener, who is a consultant based in Washington, DC, a research and consulting work on behalf of various governments, multilateral institutions, and think tanks and foundations is focused on security sector reform, particularly monitoring and, monitoring and evaluation, as well as the role of civil society and other forms of participation in post-conflict security sector recon reconstruction efforts. Previously, she served in the Obama administration as a speechwriter for, for former Secretary of Defense Robert M. Gates campaigned as an Obama 2008 staffer and worked with the National Democratic Institute in Washington, DC, Lebanon, and Jordan. She received her doctorate from Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy and is a fellow of the World Peace Foundation. So uh, please join me in welcoming these two phenomenal uh, experts on this uh, topic of the day. So with that, and without further ado, I will uh, let uh, Dr. Linda Bishai uh, bring us up to speed and give us an overview on this amazing topic of the day. So with that, please, Linda Bishai, can you go ahead? Thank you very much, Hashem. It's a pleasure to be here. And thank you to you and IWP for hosting us and, um, and for uh, approving of this interesting topic. Uh, it's been something on my mind for a very long time. And I'm sure many in the audience also um, are curious about what, what happens next for Sudan's security se sector. Um, I'm going to do my best to give uh, a bit of an overview and kind of point the way with a few um, top level uh, observations about where Sudan needs to go, what it needs to do to continue with its positive um, progress that it's made so far. And then um, I think Sarah, uh, Dr. Datsner will uh, provide um, some a, a nice deep dive into what the agreements are that came out of the Juba talks and um, what some of the details are for uh, what's needed uh, in a very technical um, security sector reform sense. So the thing that comes to mind when I look at where Sudan is now is that it's very much a mixed picture. Uh, I have a I want to remind everyone who may be feeling overwhelmed by the extent of what Sudan still needs to do, that where Sudan has come and, and where it is now in comparison to two years ago is so phenomenally amazing that everyone should just jump for joy and clap their hands um, at least once because um, Sudan has done so much and things that I never imagined it could have done when I first began to, to work on the country and, and travel to it and spend time there since uh, 2005. So um, it, it really has made remarkable progress and we need to remember that and celebrate it and, um, and then you know put our, put our heads to the task at hand. So when we look at what Sudan has done, almost every positive thing you can name has a but at the end of the phrase. So I'm gonna go through a few of those so you get the idea of how I'm thinking about this. 
um, we have a civilian cabinet with lots of skilled technocrats in, in the Sudanese government, but they are sidelined by um, the greater authority and control that the military leadership in, in the Sovereign Council has. And we see that with, um, with uh, General Burhan and Hameti taking their own bilateral relations and meetings with heads of state in other countries uh, without bringing along the civilian cabinet. Um, so that's a, that's a yes but kind of scenario. Um, we see that there are uh, definitely positive efforts to rein in the unaccountable military investments, the control over the gold mines in Darfur. We saw that just this week. Um, but there's no transparency about that process. And I don't think very many of us are very confident that this symbolic transfer of control to the civilian government really means that much because it was too easy. <laughs> I mean, it just, um, no one expects that, that the military is going to just cede control of all of this wealth um, and all of, this, uh, all of these businesses. So the transparency is a, is a major problem there. Um, we've seen really significant legal reforms. Uh, the, the NCP has been disbanded. The public order laws have been ended. Greater freedom for women. Um, really remarkable legal transitions. But the judiciary remains the same judiciary. And it was not independent. It was appointed by Bashir, much more uh, loyal to the former Islamist regime. Um, and we have, I think, in my view, even more importantly, seen a real stalling and over-politicization of the Transitional Justice Commission and the, and the transitional justice process, which I think is going to be crucial for security sector reform. Um, we have seen the Juba peace deal make tremendous progress. We've seen signatures um, with most of the participants, um, but we've also seen it stall a little bit um, with the, the Nuba Mountains. And we've seen some, and some of the Darfurian groups, and we've seen some problematic um, continuations of violence at the ethnic local level, right? You, you can sign a deal in Juba, but that doesn't mean that the people living on the ground are suddenly at peace with each other. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done to, to implement and make real the peace deal that was signed in Juba. And I think Sarah will tell us quite a bit more about that. Um, we've seen US normalize its relations um, to agree to an exchange of ambassadors, to delisting from the state sponsors of terrorism list, which is going to be a great opportunity economically. But we saw the US unwisely in my view and as an aside, these are my views alone. I do not speak for the Institute for Defense Analyses. Forgot that little um, caveat at the beginning. Um, but we've also seen the United States force a quid pro quo on Sudan for recognition of Israel and uh, reestablishing relations with that. And although that would be a good goal, and I don't oppose it in theory, um, to put it as a quid pro quo for the uh, SST delisting, in my view, was not a very wise move by the U.S. leadership. And it, it compromises the Sudanese government and makes it all too obviously apparent that it is does not have the strength to resist that, and it is in a it makes it look weak. It weakens it, and it is also not necessarily a very strong position for Israel to take friendship offered under those circumstances. Um, we have seen donors making promises. There have been several donor conferences. Several billions have been promised, but the money is coming in very slowly, um, and the situation on the ground has been increasingly dire in a very rapid way with the historic level floods, massive inflation, and rising food insecurity, all of this on top of the pandemic that we all feel. Um, that's just a kind of a flyby view of some of the 
the challenges and the achievements um, that we can see in Sudan today. Where does Sudan need to go to continue this transition and make sure to solidify the progress and, and keep it um, on its path? So I would argue that um, there are several areas. These are, I'm not the first person to acknowledge. We need, we need an economic bailout for Sudan. It needs loan forgiveness. It needs entrepreneurship, cultivation of independent um, business sector, you know, detached from the military. It needs to reinvigorate its education system and its judiciary um, with independence and codes of conduct and accountability mechanisms. It needs to strengthen, I think, above all, the governance connections between the local, state, and national levels. So we, one of the great news stories to come out of the revolution was the extent to which local level governance was filling the breach. Uh, neighborhood committees, um, local organization, not elected for sure, but um, nonetheless extremely effective and accountable because it was so localized. And um, these, these committees and these, uh, this local level governance, I think, is something that needs to be built on and not ignored and not sidelined by a formalized democratic process that says, hey, if you, if you didn't run an election, you aren't a real part of our governance structure. I think we need to account for informal structures and knit them in um, as we build a more formal, um, accountable and transparent democratic process at the higher levels. But above all, and this is, this is what you all came for, above all, um, the military has to be reformed. For any of these to, to take root and to stick, the military has to be reformed. One of the things that really stuck in my mind in, in one of the first trips I took to Sudan was um, one of my Sudanese colleagues mentioned to me, and I looked in it, and it turns out this is absolutely true, the Sudanese military has never actually protected Sudan from external invaders or threats. It's always used, aside from the you know, professional mercenarism that we're now seeing um, with some of the RSF troops and Darfurian militias. Um, the Sudanese military, the uniformed professional military has only ever fought itself inside, uh, fought its own Sudanese fellows um, and fellow nationals in the Sudanese civil, uh, civil war with the South, uh, fighting Darfur, fighting the East. I mean, most of you I'm sure are familiar with this phenomenon. That has got to change. What the military is essentially for has got to change. It needs to be professionalized. It needs to have an esprit de corps, a code of conduct, an ethics, and an identity that says we are the Sudanese military. And by that, we mean for all of Sudan. Right now, the Sudanese identity for the armed forces is basically an ethnicized leadership cult and that's, that's been splintered into multiple leaders and multiple you know, ident um, ethnically segregated cults. This is unsustainable, um, and it does. It can result in some um, very impressive-looking troop pat patrols and parades. Um, you know, it looks like it has great uh, force-using capacity, but in fact, it's quite dangerous, both for the country and for members of the armed forces themselves. Uh, to have fellow citizens who may in fact become their enemies on the turn of a dime when there's competition amongst the leadership is not a great way to live as a professional military. They should be redesigned to have an ethnic identity of Sudan writ large. And this is a long haul change. This does not happen overnight. This depends on um, cultivating a transformation in the society from top to bottom, teaching civic education in the schools, um, also changing entirely the whole um, pay incentive structure, the, the, the reliance on corruption, the reliance on the military having so, control over so many of the industries. So 
um, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to plant those seeds. There's a, a lot more on my notes to talk about, but I, I see by my watch that I, um, I really don't want to step onto Sarah's time. So I'm going to leave it here and look forward to further questions and discussion. Thanks. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Bishai, for your uh, very informative remarks. Uh, why don't you go ahead, uh, Dr. Sarah Desmond, and invite your remarks, please. Sure. Um, Dr. Bishai is an extremely tough act to follow. Uh, but I want to echo her on uh, thanking uh, um, you for setting this up and thanking the organization for really deep diving into this critical issue. Um, so I'm not going to try to cover all of the same ground she did because she did it so capably. Um, I am going to take a deeper dive into some of the structural issues and the political economy issues that have really gotten Sudan where it is now, but also possibly can get it to a better place. Um, but I do want to start out by saying that um, there's a tendency in security sector reform as a field for people to be very familiar with their own region. Um, and because of this, uh, people can get a little bit depressed and pessimistic uh, because in any given region, there's usually either no or one big success story. And if it doesn't look like the country, your country, uh, then you start to think it's not a doable proposition. Um, so a lot of my work is a larger, larger comparative lens. Um, and I just want to say before we get into the details here that there are a lot of different ways to be a security sector reform success story. And by success story, I mean human security, actual security for ordinary people on the ground. So there are a lot of different ways, paths that Sudan can follow um, to get to where it needs to be, even if there are some obstacles. So with that little disclaimer, um, you know, now that I've gone that positive note, I will say that I think that the current plans for SSR as laid out in the various peace agreements are not especially promising. Um, this doesn't mean that they can't be built from, but it means that we need to recognize the gaps and build from there. I'm gonna steal a line from Alex DeWall who has commented that the tragedy of past Sudanese conflicts is that the negotiations devolved from how Sudan should be governed to who is going to govern it in other words, a division of the spoils. And I think one of the really remarkable things about the recent revolution um, was the ability of people in the streets and all over Sudan to bring the focus back onto how Sudan is going to be governed. Um, but I'm afraid the little bit of that has been lost in the peace agreements, which are a little bit more of a uh, division. The current structure of the agreements very much limits transparency and participation. What I mean by that is that the armed group leaders are being invited into back rooms, but it's the stager decisions are still being made in those back rooms. I'll get into this later and I hope we talk about it more, but you can see this in all of the agreements in the structure of critical committees, which do not involve civil society representatives, do not have any sort of reporting structures. Um, so that's something that we need to look at. Um, there's also sort of a larger, uh, uh, political and psychological change that needs to happen in that the old spoils system dependent on oil revenue is not coming back. Um, even if it weren't for the recent radical decarbonization, it's gone for good. Um, and in an attempt to restructure it um, without that sort of basis, without that those spoils to distribute is not going to end well. Um, but part of the challenge now is to first of all, come up with an alternate economic structure that can grow the pie 
but also to get enough of the various factions that are on the fence, and by this I mean parts of the armed forces that would like for things to be different, um, and I mean people who have been involved in multiple rebellions over the years, um, to realize that things have in fact changed. Um, and whatever is gonna happen next will be different. So power sharing in Sudan means wealth sharing. This is very clear in most of the current agreements that cut the armed groups in on power in the regions um, through the mechanism of cutting them in on economic deals. Um, you can see this very much in the level of detail in numerous agreements that is dedicated to who will control what natural resources and things like that where, for instance, very few of the agreements spend more than a paragraph or two on policing um, or on what exactly demobilization will look like other than integration into the armed forces. Um, now, there are multiple problems with this model. Um, something, and I think Linda really got at this, but I'm gonna take it to brass tacks in economic terms. Um, these, these, if these agreements were actually to go through, which in itself is a little dicey over the next three years, um, it would leave Sudan with a massive military that it absolutely cannot afford and more or less doesn't need. Um, and this is a very tricky time while it's, it's happening simultaneously with the desire to pull the military out of some of the economic roles that it has been playing. So all of the agreements have provisions for basically allowing any former combatants who choose it to be reintegrated into the military. Um, as I said, that's going to create a huge structure that's not doing what Sudan needs done now in terms of the actual jobs, the infrastructure building, uh, the entrepreneurship. Um, so one thing that's gonna to have to be looked at in implementation is how to move away with that with at the same time giving uh, former combatants, the confidence that if they give up that right to be reintegrated, that they will get something worth having that will let them build a new life. Um, so further than that, and I think Linda really put the, uh, the nail on the head when she talked about the blossoming of local governance and how important that's been. Um, a lot of that is not reflected at all in the various agreements um, with different peripheral regions. There's no mechanism for ensuring local accountability during this multi-year transitional period. The assumption, um, unstated, is that the peripheral armed groups, of course, represent everybody within their territory. Um, that's not realistic for any group anywhere, and obviously it's going to vary by group. So to set this up and say, you know, representation in the new regional governments that we'll be setting up will give X seats to this armed group and why seats to that armed group. Um, that is nothing like democratization. And that is back to the old, who will rule different parts of Sudan rather than how will Sudan be, Sudan be ruled? Um, so that's something that we need to look at very carefully. Um, yeah, picking up on another of Linda's studs with judicial reform, um, I think sometimes people neglect the critical economic role of judicial reform. Um, Sudan has had a, Sudan is a, a um, it's a ripe target for investment if the investment opportunity, or I should say if the investment environment was there. And this has been clear over the years. Um, some of al-Bashir's great economic successes came when he was able to insulate 
external investors from judicial corruption. But of course that was limited because it was a part of the system. So if the pie is going to grow, if Sudan is going to achieve the kind of economic success that it needs to have to escape these problems and to capitalize on this moment of opportunity, not only do you need judicial reform, you need judicial reform up and down the chain, specifically targeting anti-corruption, specifically targeting creating investment environments um, where people will feel confident developing, for instance, Sudan's horribly neglected agricultural potential. Um, so obviously, um, this the uh, regularization of relationship the relationship with the United States is a big opportunity, and that it takes away some of the immediate economic pressure. Um, but it's an opportunity that could easily be lost if all of those funds that are freed up, if whatever debt uh, relief program is agreed to, just gets funneled into expanding an unsustainable military. Um, and this moment won't come again. So that needs to be moved on fairly quickly. Um, and it also touches on a larger issue, which I'm going to build on. Um, as Linda said, making the, uh, the deal with the United States conditional on recognizing Israel, while I too have no problem with the substance of that, the quid pro quo situation sent a very powerful message to the Sudanese people, which is what you want doesn't matter. Um, and that is a very dangerous thing to say right now. And it's tied to the larger issue where the government of Sudan, as we see it, is obviously a collaboration between the military and civilians where the military has almost all the actual power. But that doesn't mean that the military is going to take all of the blame. Um, so what we see with deals like this is the delegitimization, you know, people giving up on the idea that change is going to happen through these channels and giving up on their civilian government representatives um, because they're not able to deliver change. And they're not able to deliver change because they haven't been empowered to. And that needs to be brought out into the light by basically everyone involved, donors by the civilian government themselves, but uh, this can't be something that isn't talked about um, because you know, the pro-reform coalition will splinter um, if there isn't an opportunity to bring it back together by talking about the relative power in these structures. Um, so I wanna to take too long, but I will say um, there are some very practical issues that we're seeing in the agreements that um, unfortunately have been flaws in previous efforts that we're not seeing addressed. And one of them to bring this back to an economic place um, is the uh, danger that the DDR process as described is going to create a giant arms market because of the requirement that people who are demobilizing turn in arms. Um, also on a related note, um, we see that uh, you know, most of the demobilization language is focused around women and children. Um, there is a implicit assumption in this language that women are not going to be part of the new Sudanese military. That's contradicted by things in some of the other agreements, but you can sort of uh, see where the thinking really is when you dig into the details. Um, so skipping ahead to what can and should be done, because I want to leave plenty of time for Q&A. Um, one of the things that is allowing all of this to happen is that pro-reform forces in, within the center 
and between the center and the peripheries do not have a common reform agenda. They haven't agreed on a few things that need to happen in the next couple of years, such that they can push for them and advocate to donors. Things like, and again, I'm tying this to what Linda had to say, okay, in this period of time, we are gonna articulate the size and purpose of the military. We're gonna discuss what roles it can legitimately play eternally. And we're gonna discuss who's gonna take on the roles that are not filled. Uh, you know, uh, this uh, one thing, another thing that you see in many of the agreements, um, as I mentioned before, is lack of civil society representation. Um, and I wanna highlight that that's at the local, regional and national level. Um, it's explicitly spelled out in these agreements who will be involved in various high levels committees making these decisions. And invariably, it is representatives of the armed groups, representatives of the government, and a few international representatives. Um, that is not exactly inspiring um, from a participation standpoint. Um, now, I want to point out that there are homegrown solutions to this problem. Um, the Eastern Agreement, for instance, is calling for a consultative process, a consultative conference of the peoples of Eastern Sudan. And I think not coincidentally, it's also the only agreement that calls for civil society representation. That kind of consultative process, um, going around and doing a security assessment, asking people what they think the role of the military should be, has been hugely successful in most other SSR success stories. And frankly, it's had success in a limited way in Sudan in the past, in Darfur in 2005. Um, so there are ways to build on that if it's decided that that's something that needs to be a priority. Um, and it's possible to hang that on the System of Governments Conference, which is supposed to happen in about six months, but uh, we'll see. Um, so just to wind it up here to focus a little bit on the role of donors, um, you know, donors should not come in and be deciding what these priorities should be. That's the point of a consultative process. Um, even in much less complicated cases than Sudan, uh, we will get it wrong. What donors can do is pick up on that reform agenda and push on the same issues. Um, take that knowledge and say, okay, um, we are also not going to pretend that the military and the civilian government are the same thing um, and deal with them on those terms. We are going to demand a certain level of transparency as we work toward debt relief. Um, we are going to condition some of the, the aid that we give on non-suppression of civil society and particularly the media on there being some form of public reports. Um, one big thing that donors can do that's not covered enough, but we're seeing spilled over from South Sudan um, is as Sudan opens up economically, this is going to be a big opportunity for exploitation by some of your more predatory foreign corporations. Um, and given the problems that already exist with establishing land tenure, um, that is an extremely dangerous area. What donors can do is jump on this in the front end and say, okay, companies over which we have any leverage, if they're ours, if they're based in our territory, if they hope to do business, um, they are going to have to play by the rules and we're gonna establish publicly what those rules are. Um, so having covered that ground, uh, I'm gonna pivot to questions and, uh, or I should say, throw it back to uh, Professor Mecki.
Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Desner, for your uh, uh, remarks. It's a lot of uh, information, and certainly uh, Linda also brought a lot of this uh, remarks. So let's uh, start with some questions, and then we'll open up for Q&A. So the first question is, following on what both of you have to say on this uh, social transformation security sector reform in, in the military. What do you think the role of, I mean, you alluded to the area of the donors. So what do you think the recent US diplomatic influence in Sudan, brokering diplomatic relationship with Israel and beginning the process of lifting sanctions uh, will play uh, as a role in the, uh, in the SSR processes? And, but also what forms could or should the US support uh, in this regard? Right, um, thank you. And I'll, I'll jump in um, before stepping aside for Sarah. Um, I actually think that the, the, the quid pro quo scenario that we described is gonna hurt the US in the short term more than Sudan. <laughs> and what I mean by that is it's going to cut into the um, already fairly positive uh, view that Sudanese reformers had of the United States and hoping the role that it, you know, their hopes for the role it would play. And so I think that by, um, by showing that it was using Sudan, ultimately this is what it looks like, using Sudan as a pawn for its own greater Middle East peace process goals, uh, this administration that is, um, I think that it in, in fact cut into the trust that um, Sudanese uh, protest movement and, and reformers and civil society uh, might have had. And, and that is a problem um, for the U.S. because it means that it has less um, less leverage, uh, less influence to use when it comes to actually um, promoting some of the positive incentives and some of the pressure um, for transparency that, that Sarah just described um, with predatory corporations and investment, as well as with the way in which demobilization um, and security force integration happens. So I hope that there is, um, uh, you know, in it, as that situation just sort of naturally resolves itself by happening and fading away from the news. Um, and then we turn our attention to the actual work we have to do on Sudan. My hope is um, that the United States um, can, two things it can do. One is it has its own um, not insignificant resources to bring to bear up to promote um, economic growth and, um, you know, and, and work on the economic side. It has a, quite a bit of civilian level, civilian oriented reform mechanisms. Um, state and aid have a lot of uh, foreign aid um, money at their disposal to, to apply and are doing so in small ways at the moment. Um, in terms of security sector, the US has, you know, it's, it's, it's security assistance mechanisms are a little bit stiff. Um, and there is actually quite a bit of interesting literature now urging for, and Secretary Esper, actually, uh, Defense Secretary Esper, has recently made remarks about wanting to expand um, security cooperation with partners and allies. So Sudan has never been a partner um, for quite some time, but it has it has behind the scenes done some um, intelligence partnerships on, on counterterrorism. Um, and I think that, that its transformation now actually makes it quite a, a good um, target for a very productive, hopefully well thought out and transparent uh, recipient of security assistance. And at its best, this could mean starting from very low levels, 
um, with positive incentives in place for higher levels, greater cooperation, not just arms sales, but joint um, exercises. And um, above all, in my view, what would be really important is that professionalization that I spoke about in my opening remarks. That is um, helping to, um, to work with the Sudanese military to, to uh, inculcate those values of what being a professional soldier means, transforming that mission that they think they have from supporting their leader, who's an ethnic leader, to really being the military of the country, of the nation. Um, that, that would be at its best. That's that's the ideal. <laughs> I am, um, I'm also aware that that's a difficult thing to do for the U.S. and its partners who also engage. The Europeans do some of this work as well. Um, but that would be my hope that there could be a coordinated effort to demonstrate in small and ever increasingly positive steps uh, what the value for the military, for the rank and file. I mean, I think it's a much longer conversation and involves transitional justice to talk about what we do with the military leadership. That's a very sticky question. They have a whole different set of incentives than than the rank and file soldiers do. But um, I think that actually the strength for um, external friends and, and partners, um, the best thing that they can do is, is add incentives uh, to the military rank and file soldiers to understand what it might be like if they were professional soldiers. The second thing, and I'll, I'll make this quick, is that um, the United States and its European allies, but above all the United States, has quite a lot of leverage with the Gulf and regional neighbors who are have been exerting quite a lot of not necessarily positive influence themselves and have really just um, made it quite clear that they'd be happy to deal with only the military side of Sudan's current government and aren't particularly interested in strengthening the democratic transition process. I think the United States can um, can bring to bear um, certain amounts of pressure and um, persuasion to change that calculus. Um, even though these countries aren't so interested in a democratic process, they are interested in a stable Sudan. And if we can demonstrate that um, a transition to democracy will stabilize the country, then they could possibly um, make it a more productive engagement by the Gulf and neighboring states. Sarah. Um. That was wonderful, and Linda covered a lot of the points I think needed to be covered, but getting into it a little, um, you know, it kind of breaks my heart as someone who was in the DOD um, during some of, uh, you know, some of our earlier efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I think, again, we are engaging in really unjustifiable short-termism as the United States, and I'm talking in terms of our own interests. What I mean by this is that a stable Sudan, um, which I think it's fairly clear must be a democratic Sudan, at least to some extent, um, would be such an incredible boon for US interests in the region. Um, it would be such a powerful demonstration to Sudan's immediate neighbors. There, there is a way to make this transformation and that this transformation can be made to pay. And this is particularly critical at a time when, as we talked about, natural resource rents are all over the place. People are trying to find a new way forward. Um, so the power of that, you know, especially with ongoing and frankly fairly dangerous regional disputes um, over the Nile waters, over other issues, um, a stable Sudan could do a lot for U.S. interests. Um, the other alternative, and I don't think this has been thought about enough as we sort of rush to the, uh, the finish line here, is uh, what if these agreements go through as planned and you have a Sudan 
with a giant unaffordable military um, that it has no real use for. We're already seeing, and it has to pay for through mercenary activities. Uh, what we don't want in this region is a flood of cheap mercenaries. Um, and you're already seeing some of, you know, some of this happening with Sudanese forces being used as mercenaries in the Gulf and in Yemen and in other regional, you know, mostly, uh, you know, to the detriment of both moral considerations and the United States' interests. Um, there will only be more of that if that becomes, you know, if the, if the supply goes up, the demand will also go up. And to tie to what Linda was saying, this is a place that we have some leverage with our allies in the Gulf. We can say, okay, no, you can't do this. While we're trying to go through this process of security sector reform in Sudan, you can't be undermining it um, through this process. We probably won't be 100% successful, but we need to be thinking, as I said, of how directly this is in our own long-term interests. Um, so, I would build from that to say that if the United States is going to have red lines um, about providing certain types of assistance, that's not always a bad thing. Just because it was a bad thing with this recognition of Israel doesn't mean that it's always a bad idea, but the red lines could be very different. Um, for one thing, we have done a poor job in the past, particularly in South Sudan, but also in Sudan, of conditioning our assistance on non-persecution of civil society in the media. We've allowed this to go on even as we funded various SSR attempts and that doesn't have to continue. Um, that could be a change in our approach. Um, and that's something that I think we get a lot of support. Donors are always more powerful than they, when they act together. That's something that there's a lot of support for in our British and European allies. Um, now, moving on from then, I agree that the, the US, uh, direct SSR system is a little bit creaky. Um, and that this is something where civil society capacity building and funding consultations and protecting those kind of meetings is something that desperately needs to happen. It's something that's relatively affordable. Um, and it's something that's not really the Department of Defense's wheelhouse. So that's, that's Sudan in some ways can be an example of a larger pivot that we're trying to make. Um, but um, within that, when it, you know, we start to get to the point of training and equipping, um, which is always where we're more comfortable, um, there is good examples from previous cases um, that being sort of let back in into the realm of respectable militaries is an extremely powerful inducement for middle and lower ranks. Again, the very highest ranks is a different story but we've seen it in numerous other cases. Um, you know, right here, I'm just going to highlight, uh, you know, this was from several decades ago, but Ghana and Senegal, um, who went through security sector reform processes and part of what allowed these processes to stick um, was the incorporation of their militaries into peacekeeping missions further down the line. Obviously, Sudan is a far away from that, but the idea that that's something that could happen that the Sudanese military could have an identity and a level of professionalization um, and not have to engage in a degree of politicking and corruption that frankly must be exhausting for many of the people involved. Um, that's a thing to hold out there. And that's something that we can use uh, sort of our DOD training and equipment inducements to build on. So I'll just stop there. 
I actually, I want to quickly have a follow-on point to add to Sarah's, which is um, mentioning the capacity building with civil society. Totally agree. And I, I think that it's important for us to see that the role civil society can play vis-a-vis -vis security sector reform isn't, it's watchdog for sure. We, it, you know, civil society can hold the military um, or armed forces accountable. They can um, fact find, they can make public and keep eyes on processes and all of that good watchdog work. But I think it's important to not forget that they can also be advocates for what the military needs with the hopefully soon to be effective legislature, right? So fast forward a little bit, imagine Sudan having finally creaky, to use a good word, um, legislative process in place that starts to allocate funding and pay attention to um, other reform processes. And civil society can be an advocate for veterans, can be an advocate for, for current active duty forces, um, and they can play both the role both ways. They're different organizations can specialize with different sets of, of, of um of emphasis, and I think um, I think all too often in countries where we work closely or or hold up the role that civil society can play, we only see them as watchdogs and interested in blaming government or military for getting it wrong. Civil society has a very important advocacy role to play that supports the government and supports these transformation processes, and I think that's important to remember. I agree with you, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Bishai and uh, Sarah, for sure that civil society need to be empowered. And given that in the case of Sudan, because the former president, Omar Bashir, is, because we're talking about Sudan that is, I like the models that have been uh, cited as Ghana and Senegal. However, Sudan had not had a, a vibrant civil society due to the former uh, president, Omar al-Bashir. Now, Sudan, as we've all known, that is going through this transformation now. How can you empower that civil society so that it can act as an advocate in, in these processes that we're talking about? Linda and then uh, Sarah. Well, I, I'm actually going to politely somewhat disagree with you on, sure. um, on Sudan civil society not being very strong. Sure. Um, it was disempowered, but it was there, sure. right, waiting to be strong. And I think that um, if Sudan didn't have civil society, we couldn't have seen the protests take the grow to the extent and be nationwide the way they were. I um, so I think that that process of, of organizing for the protests, organizing for the length and strength of, of that revolutionary movement um, really breathed some air into okay. um, people who there were these little tiny one person, two person, three person civil society organizations um, during the Bashir years. They were there. They just and I used to remember. I mean, when when I did when I did this work um, trying to strengthen civil society, I remember very well that it used to be an axiom that if they had nice computers and an office, then they were government affiliated civil society because, of course, the Bashir regime created yes. its own pocket civil society organizations to funnel all the foreign funding. Right. And you know, we learned to discriminate. And if it was some guy, you know, who wore the same suit every day and worked out of his garage or didn't have an office, then he was the real guy you wanted to work with, right? He was the right. real civil society. Right. So it, it was there. It has always been there. Yes. Um, now, and, and that's a good thing. What I'm saying is even though it, it hasn't been so visible or empowered, it was there. And now that means that what we need to do is just 
take it by the hand and work with it, um, lift it up, walk with it. And right. that will mean that will mean more than just saying, okay, great, civil society, here you are, this is the role you need to play. It also means um, doing our best to to bring them up to their own management standards, right? So there's, and not just in Sudan, but across the continent and in many um, lesser developed or less wealthy countries, their civil society is not practiced in account keeping, in report writing, you know, they, they're deeply well-informed and connected and they understand what's happening in their country, but they don't necessarily know how to write advocacy reports for international consumption. Um, they don't know how to keep their own accounts clean so that they don't look like they're corrupt. So civil society needs to be transparent as it tries to hold the government transparent. And Very this important. is something we need to actually build the capacity of civil society organizations to manage themselves as that's, well, like just basic office skills as well uh, as being able to, to work with their watchdog and transparency. Indeed, that, that's, that's very insightful that the civil society need to be propped up and uh, trained and build the, the civil, uh, I mean, they build their capacity. So uh, Sarah, please. Yeah, if I could jump in here. Um, I agree with a lot of what Linda had to say, particularly about the actual strength of Sudanese civil society, but I actually have a slightly different take in terms of what support can look like. And also, first of all, I think we need to take a very expansive view of what counts as civil society in a country that's as large and as Sudan. Um, you know, it's not even some of, just limited to some of the organizations we're talking about, even if it's some guy in his garage. Um, you know, a local tribal leader is a civil society member, at least for the moment. You know, they're not officially a member of government, but they have an incredible amount of role. They're providing security and justice services. One thing that donors shouldn't do and don't have to do, frankly, is pick winners. Um, this is part of the reason that I think consultation is so powerful. And I wanna say that when I mean consultation, I mean that donors can support members of Sudanese civil society writ large in the regions, meeting with each other and setting up an agenda and saying, okay, what do we think is important here instead of being told? Um, and that can also happen between regions and it can be happening between regions and the capitals and all of those conversations. What you see in other cases is that coalitions and shared agendas tend to come out of those things by themselves. Donors don't need to go in and set them as long as people are empowered and safe to talk to each other. That doesn't mean that donors can't help. You know, particularly I'm familiar in some processes, I'm thinking of recent developments in Gambia right now where donors have gone in and basically facilitated strategic planning processes for large groups of different civil society actors. Again, not saying this is what your agenda will be, but here's a process by which you could achieve a joint agenda. Um, so I, I definitely think that there's a lot that can be done, but it needs to break with the previous mold. It needs to always be thinking in terms of how do we create, how do we help people talk to each other and set their own agenda? Not how can we decide whose voice needs to be heard here? Uh, very, very uh, insightful uh, uh, points that people need to be at the table. And I would definitely agree that at this juncture, because of the uh, post-revolution environment, people are speaking up more. I mean, friends I talk to on the grounds, they're often in consultation with the uh, 
with, with the council members, but also with others. So they, they, you know, to your point and Linda's point, the Sudanese civil society has been very vibrant. It's just that in the past they've been curtailed. Now they're opening up, uh, and they're they're being allowed to express their views. There's just many, many, many of these uh, groups, like you've said, from region to you know, definitely in the Blue Mountains, Blue Nile, uh, Darfur areas, and you mentioned that Bija. They're all on YouTube and talking about wanting their rights. So I do absolutely agree that the civil society, uh, as uh, Linda has said, need to be uh, more, maybe more training on how to advocate for the things and how to be on the table and ask the right questions and be a part of this strategic planning. So I do agree with that. Now, uh, the other question is how do these processes of SSR in Sudan affecting neighboring countries, let's say South Sudan. And as we know, the peace negotiations uh, that, is, that just happened in Al-Hilo's group and Abdul Wahid's group, they still have to follow through so that they could be brought into the, uh, into the overall peace uh, agreement so that it could be more comprehensive. But how does this processes help Sudan, but also how does it impact uh, South Sudan? Uh, uh, Linda, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, thanks. I, you know, that's that's a that's a really good question, and um, I think much remains to be seen. Uh, I was in South Sudan um, for the referendum on independence, and I remember the euphoria of South Sudan when um, it gained independence. Um, and I also remember that the Northern Sudanese felt there was a very strong sentiment of sadness, but also, well, you go show us how to do it so we can have at least one Sudan that's a good democratic country. And that was a very strong point of view in the North um, in 2011 and 2012. And sadly, that is not how it worked out. Uh, and so I wonder if there isn't now a kind of a boomerang back into the court of the North and an opportunity for the North to demonstrate a very positive model. Now, not obviously going to be difficult. That doesn't mean it gets it all right. Um, but rather, that effort, a continued sustained effort um, to, to be inclusive and transparent and accountable and to stick with it, to, to keep at it. Um, democracy isn't something you just arrive at and sit down and rest. You never get there. Um, you constantly work at it and you constantly correct and constantly watch and constantly respond. And um, for Sudan to now have that role of having to demonstrate what it looks like, um, I think is, uh, I think to answer your, your question in a very short way, um, it could have a tremendous impact on the South. Um, I am not optimistic in the short term. I think it will take quite some time um, for that positive impact to to manifest i think south sudan is in is in very deep structural crisis actually um and that's that's another panel yes we would definitely set up uh, another time for further discussion on this uh dr uh Desiner, if you can also add uh, to this if you can keep it brief because i think linda's uh linda's expertise in this particular area is much greater than mine sure. but i will say that um Having looked at issues of SSR in South Sudan, um, you know, we're dealing with most of the same things. And I should say, particularly in a political economy perspective, um, the ways of operating, the ways of making deals, who gets included and excluded, um, 
the politicians and armed group leaders in the South learned this in the, you know, back when Sudan was one country. The models are the same. Um, and so because of that, there's just such potential if things can change in the North, if a lot of these problems can be resolved, um, then it's not gonna be a one for one, but there'll be a lot to be learned um, for how real security sector reform can happen in the South. Okay, great points. Now let's pivot to the questions uh, from the audience on Facebook and YouTube and uh, uh, Zoom. So uh, Al-Mamun Sulfab asked that, what, what, what is the current uh, relationship between the Sudanese armed forces and the rabbit uh, defense force? Why didn't you take that, uh, Linda? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, well, I'm sure there's, uh, there are people who have a much closer in view um, that could be uh, more nuanced and detailed, but my quick answer to that question is they're frenemies. <laughs> Um, they are they are in competition with each other. They have some overlap of interests, um, not least of which is to maintain some some of their graft that they are currently able to to control. And you know they they don't want to give up completely. I do I do suspect, however, that there's a, a there is a dawning sense of realism about the inability of the forces, both the SAF and the SRF, um, to have things just as they were. I think that is dawning on people. Um, okay. So the real question is what comes next? And uh, I do think it'll be quite important to, so to back up and be more direct to the question, the SAF and the SRF are, are led by two different leaders <laughs> um, with two different um, ideas of, of what success looks like. And I think that um, discussion of integration of forces, which is nominally accepted and agreed upon, um, is another one of those processes that, as Sarah describes, there's an awful lot of, well, you know, who gets to do it as opposed to what it actually is. And, um, and that's definitely happened with uh, talking about force integration between the SRF and the SAF, um, the RSF and the SAF. Um, and I think that, I don't have a, a good, quick, here's the best way to do this kind of answer for that question. But I do think that um, the, the role of outside actors and the role of reformers must be on process. The process must be transparent and inclusive and accountable. We need to know what they're deciding, who's deciding it, how it's going to be monitored as it moves forward towards the achievement of the stated goal. Um, and it needs to be an inclusive process that accounts for the effect that this ultimate integration and reform will have on all of the, the people up and down the chain, all the way down into local communities and neighborhoods. Um, but yeah, that's the relationship between the RSF and the SAF is um, probably the single biggest security forces question. Sarah, having followed this closely, what's your read on this? Well, I'll jump in for just a second. I don't know if sure. I followed it closely in this, but I will say that, um, again, applying the lessons of other efforts, um, you know, it's all about who has the bigger, the bigger coalition that manages to stay united for longer, pro-reform or anti-reform forces. And so if the RSF and the SAF stay united, in an anti-reform direction, I don't think reform is going to happen. 
but I don't think that they are united because I don't think that they actually have the same interests. And this I'm gonna get to Linda's uh, frenemy. Um, and I think that one of the, the strongest things that both externals and internals pro-reformers can do is highlight the fact that the RSF and the SAF don't have the same interests. Um, you know, I think that the, the SAF has a lot more of an interest in becoming the kind of professional military that we picture. They have more experience with it. That's more of their institutional culture. Um, and I, you know, again, you have to rely on reports, but I think there's, there's more of an interest there. Um, and the RSF has never really been that. Um, and this isn't to say that there's no working with the RSF and it should be, you know, cast into the darkness. Um, but part of these conversations that need to be had as Linda said, the process is very important in public as much as possible, is to talk about who is going to do what, what are the roles moving forward, and specifically, what does this mean for what will happen for people at the highest level, what will happen to people at the middle rank, and what will happen for people at the bottom. Um, I'm leaving out the integration issue for the moment because that's a whole nother uh, kettle of fish. But I think that the process of having those conversations in public will make these contradictions much clearer. Part of the problem in past efforts has been that these things all happen behind closed doors and then leaders come out and say, trust me, I'm taking care of you. And that's where the pushback can happen. Indeed. Uh, William Kalima asks the questions of what should the international community and the US government do to reduce conflict in the region and help the Nuba Mountains? I would, uh, I guess, Sari just spoke, so maybe, Linda, how are you? Um, I think the fact that the conflict is continuing despite the very close, uh, the Nuba Mountains uh, leadership um, is quite close to to joining the Juba agreements. Um, I think speaks to Sarah's comment about how um, these leaders only represent interest in the broadest possible sense and um, are not necessarily able to, uh, to to completely control or speak for their their entire regions. And I think that what the U.S. can do um, is is to make sure that it makes clear that it sees what's happening and hold the Sudan current integrated government accountable for that continued violence, right? It is not the role of the United States to get in there and stop the violence in the Nuba Mountains, but it is their role, US and its, and its allies and, and friends of Sudan. It is our role to say, you guys haven't fixed it. Get back in there and fix it. And, and what we mean it. by fix it is, you know, make sure that you have accounted for all the different local groups and interests, and don't don't just fix it at the high level by getting Abdulaziz Al Hilu to sign a piece of paper. That's not fixing it, right? As important as he is, and you know, and, and that's not an insignificant achievement. It will it doesn't mean that conflict just goes away. Conflict conflict has been built up for the 30 years of the Bashir regime. It doesn't go away overnight because suddenly the government says, great, we're all friends now. Um, you have all those people at the local levels who aren't friends and who have been incentivized to fight. So I think um, a good part of it is, um, is you know, pressure, uh, pushing on transparency, keeping it visible, keeping it in the public eye, but also paying attention to what the root causes are. So we've said a little bit about uh, you know, the changing 
um, economic landscape and the, the, there's no oil anymore, um, or even if there were, oil is not really the, the great commodity it used to be. Um, there's the water argument going on in which Sudan is in pulled in the middle between Egypt and Ethiopia. Um, there are land rights issues. There are the nomadic and the farmer and the herder, you know, issues that, that have plagued Sudan for much of its history, and they're only exacerbated. They've been politicized and made worse. These are issues that can be resolved if people don't feel like their very lives are threatened. And that is what the Bashir regime did for 30 years. It pushed the, the, the disagreements and, and conflicts into existential ones and made them seem like they were the most important thing that anyone could ever be involved in. If I don't, you know, if, if I survive, you die. If you survive, I die. We've got to get rid of that because the truth is Sudan has enough wealth for everybody. And True. that big pie just needs to be shown to everyone and their role in it needs to be shown. Indeed. So the pie has to be shared. I mean, you alluded to Abdulaziz Al-Hilo's uh, upcoming meetings in Cuba for, to resume negotiate, uh, peace negotiations. So on the other hand, you also have Abdul Wahid, uh, whose group also, they have presence in Darfur. So, uh, which indicates, like you said, this root causes unless these other opposition groups uh, are brought into the peace uh, negotiation processes, and of course, having the civil society also present, this peace processes and root causes might not be addressed. Uh, Sarah? I think Linda really covered the specific situation, but I do wanna highlight that sort of some of the things that we're seeing in the Nuba Mountains because of these agreements. Um, you know, when we push for participation and consultation, it's not just because it's nice and it's what people deserve, it's because it's the only way to build real stability. And particularly the model in Sudan in the past has been that, so if the armed groups have pretty much unchecked power in the regions, as is played out in some of the agreements over a course of years, some of them will handle it well and some of them will handle it badly. And there won't be accountability checks um, as currently written, unless there's some attempt to build up local and regional government. And what will happen in that case is that unhappy people within these spheres of influence will rebel. You'll see the same kind of splitting of groups who have different interests. You'll see, um, I would expect an explosion of violence within various regions. Um, and that is the real reason to focus on cutting that off at the past now. Um, because we don't wanna see this pattern. You know, if, if violence becomes fractal like that, then the next peace process is going to be even harder. I think you alluded to something very important, which is the, uh, the, the groups that operate within the regions. And certainly that has been, uh, the, under this uh, current transitional government, there has been instances from both Sudan, uh, certainly with the bigger you alluded to earlier, with Beni Amir and Danubas having tensions, but also in places like a Jinena in, uh, in a Darfur where, where a group of armed men would just go and ransack an entire village and burn it to the ground and other places. So this has been, you know, there have been instances like that under, the, under this current administration. And uh, so the, it begs the question, well, who are the people who are behind this? Are they the, are this the old uh, guard who are just not going, you know, off the radar quietly? And there's certain uh, elements of that, security, 
need to be checked, maybe better policing and maybe reform, like we've said in this topic. So, but you also have the political parties influence in the regions. So for instance, in the Nuba Mountains, there the, have been appointments of uh, certain governors. So some governors who have been appointed have been rejected by the people. Some have been accepted. So it depends on how this uh, reform efforts goes and how that consultation with the people takes place because, and I do agree that if we have people being consulted and they agree that so-and-so have to represent them, then maybe that ought to be respected. And uh, this is definitely a dynamic that is being played on and is ongoing right now. So great point. Uh, second question for Ms. Maila Kushkush is what is the evidence, what evidence is there in of regional actors funding the military uh, slash RSF intelligence, uh, which cons uh, within this within this transitional government, Linda. I'm not entirely sure. I, I the question is, what is the evidence of foreign militaries funding the RSF? What was the, the regional question? actors? The question regional is actors, yeah. regional actors funding mm -hmm. the military uh, intelligence within the transitional government. Uh, I'm not really sure, but let's say, let's say, uh, with, I think the thing within the Sudan debate right now is UAE role, Egypt, mm -hmm. Egyptians role, Saudi roles within, you know, the, the actors. And then of course we have IGAT, uh, East, uh, Eastern African uh, Economic Bloc, but also the African Union. I, I, I believe this is what the questioner Ismail Kushkish is uh, alluding to. Well, there have certainly been um, a number of reports in um, a year ago during the the run up to the the actual final agreement, and um, right around the June third massacre uh, time, when uh, there were reports coming out, and and these are reports where you know this is the kind of thing where you can't exactly you're not going to footnote it to an official person admitting it, it's the kind of thing where I had a conversation with a high-level government official. Um, so these are the kinds of sources, and they're not named, but you have to just trust them based on who is telling you that they said it. Um, and there are a number of, uh, I think, fairly reliable accounts of um, high-level support from the Gulf, from the UAE, from Saudi Arabia, um, Qatar being sidelined by that interest, um, but there in the background having previously supported the Bashir regime. Um, but basically high level interest, Egypt of course as well, um, with the military side of the conversation being, um, you know, so the negotiations happening um, between Burhan and Hameti and uh, the FFC. And I think that um, there's no evidence that that support, and it's been both financial and um, moral, if you will, <laughs> So put square, square, scare quotes around the word moral there, um, that kind of support for uh, the military side of, of the government. There's no evidence that that has changed and that there is now Gulf support for the civilian side, right? When um, you see uh, Burhan um, flying to, you know, and you see Hameti flying to Doha, flying to Riyadh, um, flying to uh, Abu Dhabi and um, having conversations, um, He's also flying to, you know, they're, they're, they're taking meetings with very high level bilateral um, governments without uh, the presence of Hamdok, without the foreign minister. Um, this tells you, 
you know, you can you can connect the dots behind the scene. Um, you can dig and find some evidence from reports um, about whether money changed hands. I'm fairly sure some did, um, where that money goes. Because of Sudan's military um, non-transparency, the fact that they're trying to hide the corruption that, that funds them, um, it would be extremely difficult to actually uncover where the money goes um, and how it's spent. But that is part of what the transformation process needs to, to do. It needs to make it impossible for other governments to only support the military. The support to the Sudanese military should go through the transparent Ministry of Finance so that we can see it and we know what it's spent on and who ultimately gets it. Um, so that the very fact that you can't find evidence for support is the problem. That support needs to be absolutely transparent. And that's how you know you're going to have reform. So the next question is, Lind uh, Schellenberg asks, do you think the renewed relationship between Sudan and Israel will halt if there is a new administration in the United States? I doubt that. Um, I doubt that very much. But uh, and I'll, I don't want to monopolize that because I think Sarah has views on this too. But um, for me, I don't, I don't think any, I don't think any U.S. leader um, would say it's a terrible idea for Sudan and Israel to to be friends. I think what is likely to happen is that without a hard push, um, if there's a bit of a backing off. Um, they could be friends the way Egypt and Israel are friends. And Egypt and Israel have been friends for a long time, and they're really not friends. And that was my earlier point about how it's not necessarily a good thing for Israel to have this normalization, because normalization is a box-checking exercise. It doesn't mean the nations are friends. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, Sudan is going to it means that you can buy Sudan's friendship, let's put it that way, in an instrumental way. And that is, I'm not criticizing the government for having to do that. It is absolutely with its back against the wall here. They need to make this choice. They don't have a lot of options. Um, I don't see that they're making it and will withdraw it right away and re you know, you know, go back to status quo ante. I don't think that'll happen. Um, but what I do think will happen is that the friendship will be skin deep. And, and that the, it, the ball is really in Israel's court to show Sudan that it's worth being friends with, that there's a value to it. And it's not just that the U.S. is making it happen. Uh, Sarah? Um, to speak a little less directly, but sort of combine this and the previous question, I don't know. So I know they don't seem obviously connected, but um, in general, part of the value of a more transparent process and having all these conversations in public um, is there's a lot of countries that are very obviously using Sudan for their own purposes um, right now. And that's okay. That's what countries do. I don't mean it's okay in a larger sense, but it's about what can be expected. Um, and part of that, that's possible because of the division um, and the fact that there's a lack of established processes. Um, you know, we know that some of the, the money that's coming from the use of certain Sudanese military uh, Sudanese mercenaries is making its way to various parts of the, the military. Um, and that's changing the power balance. And, you know, that is only possible because of this kind of lack of transparency. I think that as, you know, if things succeed, as Sudan stabilizes, as democratic structures become more established, I would expect to be, see sort of growing outrage among uh, which is already exists on a lower level, but I think will just be articulated more from 
uh, Sudanese citizens for how all of this has happened and continues to happen. Um, and at that point, and I could be talking about Israel, I could be talking about Saudi, the UAE, but if we get to that point, um, I don't think it will be a good idea to be um, still in the position to be the recipient of all of that anger. Um, now is the time to build more genuinely reciprocal rep relationships with Sudan because things will change. Great inputs. Uh, this is from an anonymous uh, attendee. So he or she says, years of oppressive regime in or regimes in Sudan and anti-intellectual by al-Bashir rule of the skilled and professional Sudanese have been displaced and gone to other countries. How should the interim government tap into those who have uh, who have become, you know, economic immigrants or who have lived abroad? How how would the current government tap into that so that they can help in the reform uh, processes? That's a really good question and a, and a really important observation that Sudan has a wealthy and educated diaspora class. Uh, and um, we are, and we're privileged to be moderated by one of them right now. So <laughs> this is kind of, um, this is kind of a great question about how do you use your diaspora? Um, that's a, it's, it's a tricky question because the diaspora was extremely active in supporting and, and, uh, amplifying the revolution as it happened in real time. Now that it, there's a kind of a distance now that the transformation process is sort of happening in the country and what does everyone out of the country do? Um, and it, you know, having your Twitter and Facebook accounts isn't necessarily as directly active uh, as it was during the sit-ins and, and when, you know, making news was, was really part of the effort. Um, I think that there are, um, I think that the making the economic environment, um, uh, the, the judicial reform that was mentioned earlier, um, conducive to investment is one way. And I think um, Sudanese investors will be the first to jump back in. Uh, there's a question about whether you want them to stay abroad or you want to lure them back. Um, and I... I I'm not sure what uh, you know what the Sudanese government's thinking is on this one um, entirely, um, but I do think that what you want to do is make the Sudanese diaspora feel invested in Sudan's success. Um, the way to do that is to openly engage them through the embassies um, and to to be open to their involvement when they tap you and and ask. Um, I think that it's important for those who are still in the country and who may feel that they bore the burden of the of the demonstrations and the protests um, to not feel, I think there's a risk is what I mean to say, that if the diaspora's talents are, are overly appreciated or seen to be overly appreciated that there could be resentment um, by those who, who had to suffer through in country. That's my point. Um, and I think that that's sort of a natural risk every time you have this kind of social transformation um, where there's a, a diaspora involved, um, that the diaspora needs to have a well-defined, clear and transparent role rather than being seen to suddenly, because they left the country and got rich, suddenly have all the power. Um, you need to not be seen to be too um, responsive to the diaspora um, for your for your domestic audience, but the diaspora is there and it's powerful and talented and should be used. Um, so I think that some creative mechanisms, um, forming 
forming regular contact, um, hearing ideas from the, the Sudanese abroad, um, letting, asking them how they want to help, what they feel um, able to do to help, um, keeping them in the loop, but managing that process mindfully um, to not, um, not rely on them in a way that makes it sound like the value of the actual Sudanese citizens uh, who were part of the, the revolutionary process themselves is, is being marginalized. Um, I know that's a convoluted answer, um, but I do feel that that risk is real and it's happened in other places. Very good, very good. Sarah? I'm gonna supplement this with an incredibly narrow response because okay. Linda captured so much. Um, and that's because I can't speak to any other politics but the United States. But um, early in my career, I did a lot of work with um, political organizing work with various diaspora communities in the United States as part of US politics. And I should say that uh, influential diaspora communities are united diaspora communities. And even though there aren't that many Sudanese in the United States, there are enough and in certain places. Um, you know, you can see there's, there's always a tension between are we going to spend our time and energy focusing on issues back home? Or are we going to spend our time and energy sort of advocating for, you know, the way that we would like policy to be within the United States? Um, and I would, you know, they're both important, but I would em perhaps emphasize a little bit more on the second because the United States has made a lot of decisions about Sudan from a place of ignorance um, and from a place of being pulled in different directions. And uh, a united diaspora community that is sending a clear message about what needs to happen next can actually be pretty politically influential in this uh, immigrant country of ours great insights and that's why we're here to uh, bring knowledge to the public so that they could be educated and then once they are maybe they will be making informed decisions be it foreign policy or otherwise vis-a-vis uh, -vis Sudan. Uh, with regard to Linda's point I believe the, 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 you, you're, you're spot on on in terms of the diaspora role you know in, in the current in transition and by and large they have played a huge role they, they have also they've been engaged by the current administration at least from the uh, I mean the Sudanese prime minister have gone abroad and his cabinet also tried to do this outreach but I certainly do agree that perhaps they could do uh, you know I mean I wouldn't say more to that since you put it very well now let's pivot uh, to an issue of uh, so the question I have here is what role or how, how would the broad participation of women and their participation in the leadership and democratization processes influence this current administration of, you know, but also going forward, uh, particularly with the security sector reform in the Sudan? Um, well, I, I just have two observations on that question. Um, sure. One is the statistics are totally in favor of um, the greater number of women, the more likely the success okay. of transformation processes, of peace processes, um, also of the use of the military. Um, when women are in the military and in the police, their ability to um, cultivate and provide security is maximized. Um, so numbers are there, studies have been done, 
go read and believe. Um, <laughs> in terms of what this government is doing or what the security sector reform prospects look like, I would just go back to the earlier observation that Sarah made that there doesn't seem to be an expectation that women will be in the military and say, we need to put that to bed as quickly as we can. Um, and to say, um, all modern professional militaries understand and appreciate and include women. And um, if you want to join the ranks of professional militaries and provide that, you know, that role of, of being in the African rapid response troops or being in UN peacekeeping missions that we mentioned earlier that would be bolster um, both your, your incomes, but also your, your prestige and your role in the world, uh, you need to incorporate women into your ranks and understand why. Um, there's, a, <laughs> there's a great history in Sudan of box checking with women. And, um, you know, they you can they they round up the nearest women and the family and put them on the ballot and say we have met our um quota. our quota um and then those women can only vote the way their husbands tell them to that's not what we mean um we mean the capacity of women needs to be used and sudanese women also have a very a strong history of being organized um educated and capable and so they are a resource that the country needs and should use Great, great. I certainly agree that the you know the woman participation. I mean, they were pivotal during the uh, the revolution. So it's like an iconic picture of Allah, who's the woman who is on the you know top of the car. So this picture just went viral, and it it does it does show that women have uh, contributed uh, greatly to this to the success of uh, removing Omar al Bashir from power, and. The current Minister of Justice, I believe he has, he has uh, passed some reform laws that gives women more rights. I mean, in Sudan, having been ruled under Sharia law, women were not allowed to, I mean, dress code was, you know, strictly imposed and alcohol being brewed and things like that. So there have been some uh, successes in terms of uh, laws passed that give to women this, uh, what benefits, but definitely there's more room for uh, improvement in that regard. Uh, on that same topic, I mean, you both are experts on, on this transitional and social transformation, but countries certainly in the, in the form of Sudan or countries that are like Sudan who have emerged from a, a conflict and a civil war, uh, we're talking specifically about the IDPs in the Four Noble Mountains, Blue Nile, and the huge chunk of this are women who have burned, uh, you know, who have basically suffered and, you know, being raped and uh, whatnot, and the, you know, the loved one being taken away from them. So we're still talking about transitional justice, the family members that have not been accounted for or have been, uh, you know, victimized by the former regime have not. So what would you two say to that? I mean, what is the best way of addressing this transitional justice issues for the victims, especially in Darfur, Nubo Mountain, in these areas, but also how do you just, you know, account for uh, compensating them so that they can safely return and was, you know, so that they can start their lives over? Well, if I could jump in for a second. To yes, just please. Combine these two. I think Linda might have more to say specifically about transitional justice. But, you know, two things are true simultaneously. And one of those is that women were disproportionately victims. Uh, but it's also true that it's dangerous to paint women exclusively as victims okay. and sort of put them in that space. 
And I think one of the things that distinguishes successful and non-token inclusion of women um, from just that old tokenism is to look at the roles that women are already playing and figure out how to recognize and formalize those. And I mean, you know, I've seen this in multiple different things. So it's not just Sudan, but uh, you see cases, and this is definitely true in Sudan, uh, where women have served as combatants in various armed groups. Um, and this is conveniently forgotten uh, because nobody, it's, you know, it's a narrative that people don't want to think about. Um, and so they're basically told to go home at the end of it um, instead of sort of, ex, you know, focusing on that as a reintegration priority, people who already have some of this experience. Um, and also, and this takes us a little closer to transitional justice, um, in the security vacuum that many parts of Sudan have been experiencing all this time, women have stepped up um, as non-formal providers of justice, probably more than security, um, you know, but also providing social services, that kind of thing. And there's a, there's a risk as there have been in other efforts that as things formalize, it'll be like, okay, thank you for doing that. Now we're gonna go back to the previous model. Um, which never worked that well to begin with. So there's a need to pay a lot of attention um, all over, but yes, primarily in areas where there's a lot of IDPs to what is working right now? What are women already doing and how can they be supported? Because they understand what they need the best. Linda. On the, um, on the technicalities of the function or process of transitional justice, there are lots of models. And, um, and it's not one size fits all. I think there needs to be, the government needs to bite the bullet and stop pretending that they can just delay down the road until it goes away and people forget about it. They're never gonna forget about it. It's absolutely crucial that a process happens and that it be as extensive and inclusive as possible, meaning that it covers as many conflicts and as many abuses as it can um, and, and allows the voices, the stories to be told and the record to be written of what happened. Um, and so, you know, one, I understand, of course, that the security forces have a very strong interest in not having that record um, come out. And so uh, this, you know, but Sudan isn't the first time or the first country to have this problem and to go through this process. There are many models available where um, there is forgiveness, there is amnesty, um, there is simply telling the story but not making it a legal process. Um, the, probably the, the international gold standard would be to find a local way that suits your your culture and suits the needs of local communities while identifying a certain top level leadership that doesn't get let off, right? So you you sort of slice the, the, the leadership and those who gave the overarching orders that made the abuses happen. Um, and then the lower level um, rank and file abusers are, are simply recorded. Um, but there's plenty of, plenty of leeway, you know, you can have all kinds of um, community service action, you can have, um, you know, it's basically a, a menu that uh, can be tailor-made to suit. Now, the question is, how do you find out what the Sudanese will be happy with? And it may look different in all the different regions. Sudan's transitional justice process may need to be um, one for every state of Darfur. 
um, one for the Nuba Mountains, one for Blue Nile, one for the East, um, one for the continuingly simmering process in Abyei um, and the North. Um, and Sudan Khartoum itself, let's not forget that Khartoum itself um, saw tremendous abuses. And so um, I think that, again, that's one of the things the international community can keep doing, can keep saying, um, you're forgetting about transitional justice, let's not do that, and, and provide positive incentives. You know, we're gonna unlock this fund of assistance um, if we see that your commission is beginning and meeting and starting to come up with plans. You know, that's, and again, there's plenty of transitional justice expertise in, in international partners and organizations. It's, we're waiting to share. Um, that's, you know, Sudan is not alone in coming up with how it's gonna deal with this. There will be support, but it has to lead the process. It has to be a homegrown process. Perfect. Well, this is a really lively discussion and uh, we definitely need more time. But, and we're coming to the end of our uh, panel discussion, which is very enigmatic. I could go on and on. There's still more questions to be asked, but uh, we, we don't have time. But um, I'm so grateful that we've had this opportunity to uh, talk Sudan security reform and the way forward. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Linda Bishai and Dr. Uh, uh, Sarah Desner for this uh, very lively, energetic, and very informative. Uh, I hope it benefits the people of Sudan and uh, we see a, a progress in that country. So I really honored to have moderated this event and participated in it. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And, and thank you to our audience for bringing their questions. It has been a great discussion. So thank you and uh, have a good evening and uh, good night wherever you are. And I look forward to seeing you in future uh, African Strategic Forum uh, webinars. So thank you.